Well, you have endured to the end. Uh, way to go. Uh, this has not been, uh, are we recording yet? Do you know? Can you go see? I know Clayton was here, but um, uh, hopefully uh, I just want to not miss this because we have a lot of folks that aren't able to make it and they, they are catching it on our, our, on our website. Um, we are uh, putting these, uh, the audio on the website. So uh, uh, we are uh, on the audio. It's hard to hear some of the videos. So Rob is going to kind of do some magic with that and uh and work on some of that so um but hey i'm really thankful that you have made it and uh that we've we've walked through this journey um it is um you know this is really really important for us i i think it's an important time in uh in just the church to dive into this issue uh i think it's um um uh it's an interesting day as you see many uh, pastors and churches move away from the Word of God, move away from, uh, like we've talked about the term, orthodox uh, teaching of Scripture. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, 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 I want you to know something that, that, I, that we believe, that I, we teach here, and, and um, you know, the Bible is all we need to know God. And that's an important thing to understand. There's a lot of people that think, well, I can have dreams, or I can, there are other sources of revelation. But God, God has given us his word, and it's amazing how he has preserved it and how he has um, supernaturally worked this out. God is at work in the world, and, and God was at work in the formation, in the, in the, uh, in the gift of, of the scriptures. And, <laughs> excuse me, but we live in a world where some, there are people that look to other things outside of scripture as a revelation of God. And, and I want us to understand, and I think it's very important for us to understand, that the Scripture is sufficient. The Scripture is sufficient for us to know God, for us to know what to do. And, and these, these are not in your notes, but I want to give you three quick things about God's Word this, this evening as we, as we get into our, our study tonight on translations and, and authority is where we're, we're going tonight. But, but um, I, I want you to see that the Bible is sufficient for salvation, that, that, that the Bible speaks to salvation, and it speaks to the message of salvation. And, and this is uh, important. Like Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that we were dead, and, and, and God has spoken. God has brought us from death to life. And it says in, a, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it's by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. And, and I want us to see how important it is for, for us to, to believe and to trust that the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient for salvation. Uh, the Bible is also sufficient for our sanctification. 
Now, you know what that word means, right? Sanctification is, is the lifelong process for our spiritual growth. That we are in the process of sanctification. We are growing up in our faith. And, as, and, and you know, one of the things I learned from, uh, from Robin's grandfather, uh, Margaret's dad, John Shelton was uh, um, just such an incredible man of God. He was a pastor for, um, for his whole life. Uh, he used to hitchhike from OBU to go to his uh, preaching where he was asked to preach in the weekends. He would hitchhike. He was never late. Uh, he always made it to, to where he was preaching. And, um, but just an incredible, incredible man. Uh, one time when I was, uh, Robin broke up with me. I mentioned that last week when, when Heath was here. And, uh, and I don't know if I told you this story before. I, I, I might, I, did I tell you it last week when, when I picked up that hitchhiker? Did I tell that story? Um, well, um, we were broken up, and I was at OBU, and I'm driving through Oklahoma City. I pick up a hitchhiker. Because I'm, like, depressed, so what do I do when I'm depressed? I, I go talk to people about Jesus because it makes me feel better. And uh, so I pick up this hitchhiker to witness to him, and my mom got on to me, don't pick up hitchhikers, but I still did. Um, and I, I'm witnessing to this guy, taking him to the Jesus house downtown Oklahoma City. And, and I said, man, can I tell you about Jesus? And he goes, a, a man named John Shelton led me to the Lord. And I was like, oh, really? His, his granddaughter just broke up with me. And, uh, and, and he was like, oh, it's okay, man. It may work out. I was like, I hope so. So, so here I am trying to witness this guy. And uh, he's helping me like, with my grief of Robin breaking up with me. It was pretty awesome. But, um, but I'll never forget when John and Eva stayed at our house for, for, uh, um, for a week. They were in their 80s. I, I don't know how old they, they were older. And uh, John had been retired, and, and, and every morning he got his Bible that was about this big, and uh, he would come to my kitchen table every morning, open his Bible. And I thought to myself, and I asked him, I said, John, what are you reading? And he told me the passage. And I thought, how many times have you read that passage? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, but, but his actions were like, God, I need you every day. He, even in, as a retired pastor in his 80s, he never stopped growing. I thought, that's what I want to be like. Because the Bible is sufficient for our sanctification, for, um, for our growth. And this is why I want us to trust it, how important it is for us to trust the Word of God. And we live in a day where, where there, are, there are leaders that are, um, and some are at big churches, that are throwing doubt in the scriptures. And so for us, we, we, as we listen to some of these doubts, we just thought, you know what? No, we're not going to do that. We're, we, we're going to be a church that says, look, we trust that God's word is sufficient for the message of salvation because the world needs Jesus. And, and, and God uses his word to help us understand the path of salvation, and we should proclaim it boldly. The, the, the Bible is sufficient for our sanctification. And, and as we study the Bible, do you know what happens? We, we get the heart of Christ. We, we get the mind of Christ. I mean, we understand the will of Christ. And, 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 and then, do you know what happens? As we do this, we begin to look like the body of Christ. And when I look at the world we're living in right now, I can't think of a, of a more important time uh, for people in the world to see the body of Christ lived out.
through us. And, and it's my prayer that we can become a people that, that reflect, the body, uh, we can become the, the, the body of Christ like he intended. Um, and, 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 you know, when I, when I think about how important it, us, it is for us not to neglect the word, because if we are confident in the word of God, we'll study it. And, and I want you to, real quickly, just for a couple of minutes, I, I want you to tur- turn to some passages with me in your Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We've looked at this before, but, but look at what God's Word does in our life, uh, in our lives. Look at this. Uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Isn't that amazing that God's Word does this for us? Uh, Turn over to Psalm 119, 10 and 11. Um, we're we're going to do a little Bible drill for a few, for just a couple minutes. Psalm 119, 10 and 11. I'll give you a second to get there in your phones. You know, used to, uh, anybody ever do Bible drill when they were a kid? Um, okay. I I went to one of my, uh, students Bible drill class and I was like, dad gum, I'm his teacher. I got to teach this kid. He just, now it's like, how quick are you on your phone? Uh, but it's a different Bible drill. But Psalm 119, 10 and 11. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored you up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, look at how God's word, uh, not only like Paul said to Timothy, he, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness, but, but, but it helps us not sin against God. Okay, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. Um, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. Turn over real quick. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And, and we see that, that God disciplines us. He uses his word to, to discipline us and, and, to, and, to, and to correct us, to, to make us right. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Flip over to Titus 2 real quick. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Man, how important that is. Oh, my goodness. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I love it how God is is producing in us a, a people that are prepared for him. A people that are expectant, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Turn over there real quick, Ephesians 6. This is what God is doing in our lives, how he's using his word. Finally, be strong in the, in the Lord, verse 10. 
Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And we see how God's word prepares us for the spiritual battle. Uh, And this is important for us because we we forget sometimes that we are in a spiritual battle. And and we cannot be lax with Scripture and and lax in understanding the Word of God. We've got to come and wrestle with these things and and trust the Lord. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. I know I had you turn to Hebrews 5, but I like this. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. It says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we see that God is sufficient for our salvation, or excuse me, that the Bible is sufficient for salvation, for the message of salvation. The Bible is sufficient for our sanctification. And I want you to see, thirdly, the Bible is sufficient for our satisfaction. That, that, that God is, 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 is leading us to, to, the, to the most fulfilled life as we surrender to, this, to, to his word, as we surrender to what he has said and what he has revealed. And, and, and you know, as we embrace this challenge this year in 2018, um, that, that we're, we're, the challenge is to share the gospel with as many people as our age. Um, you know, this morning was so uh, fun. Uh, Ralph Cunningham uh, 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 invited me to come speak at their staff meeting at Bank of Owasso. And uh, we did it in a kind of a fun way because Ralph's just real creative. And, and, um, but, but just in front of all those employees, Ralph and I got to share the gospel, just communicate the gospel, what salvation is to, to this, all the employees. And you know what's amazing is, is I have been praying, God, help me get in front of people to share the gospel. And God keeps opening these, opening these doors that are, are just cracking me up. It just cracks me up when you start asking God, give us the opportunity to share the gospel. And God just opens the door. And, 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 and so, you, you know, the, Bible's, uh, the Bible is sufficient for us. So, so this is important for us to embrace and understand. And, and one of the things that I'm praying that God does through this study, because if we trust the word of God, if we trust what God has said, then we will we'll answer the call of scripture. And, and we've got to answer that call. 
the call to share the gospel with the world. One more verse, and then I'll, we'll be through with the Bible drill for tonight. But, but Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. This is, uh, I love this passage. How then will they, will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing, look at this, through the word of Christ. And so this is why I pray that we leave this, this five-week study with some tools in our hands, uh, that, that some confidence in our hearts. God, we can trust your word. We, and because as we trust it, if we trust it, we'll go live it. And, and the world is desperate to see, to see people living out the word of God. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, I've said, God, may we answer that call. May our church answer that call. And so that's where we've got to go. And that's how we've got to live. So tonight, the question that we're going to uh, dig into is, is, is how do we interpret it? How do we interpret the scriptures? How do we understand it? And and so let's pray and ask the Lord to guide our time tonight and, and to lead us. Father, I thank you for the, the moments of mental sweat. And Lord, it is with joy in our hearts that we come to study your word. This is, this is not, <laughs> excuse me, Lord, this is not a burden. This is a joy. We, we joyfully, we delight in coming and looking at your word and, and seeking to understand it, Father. And I pray that you would move us to be a people who delight in your word. Lord, we don't want to come out of obligation. We want to come out of joy and delight in what you have said, that we get to feast tonight on, on the truths of your word. So would you guide us? Would you lead us? Lord, would you, would you speak to us? I thank you for the revelation of your word, and may we... May we be a people that lives it and that honors you. Lead us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. You guys have made it. You are the faithful. We, uh, you know, it's like, some courses in school, they, they, they put all the hard stuff up front to uh, weed people out. So we've weeded out everybody else, and the faithful remain. <laughs> uh, we're, going to, 
we're going to do uh, two things tonight. We're going to look at interpretation, and uh, primarily we're going to we're going to wrestle with some ideas uh, with how do we correctly interpret the scriptures. Uh, but then also we're going to look at translations, and, and so your handouts will be helpful as we go through this evening. And then we'll look uh, briefly at authority again. So we'll revisit that idea. We started with the idea of authority, and we will end with the idea of authority because that is a very important thing to address when we say, what is the scripture, and is it authoritative? Does it have authority? But before we get started with all of that, uh, I want to ask a question. Can anyone tell me the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology? Does anyone know the difference between those two? Have you ever heard anyone explain that to you before? It's really important. Sometimes people would think, uh, they're the same thing. Because <laughs> how can you do systematic theology without the Bible, <laughs> right? So has, uh, let's, start, let's start off, has everyone at least heard of systematic theology? Awesome. And I hope everyone's heard of biblical theology. Let me tell you the difference, because this, this distinction is not, is not pointless. There is a distinction to be made. So when we do biblical theology, which is, is absolutely important in the life of the believer, we are coming to the Word of God, okay? Absolutely. It, it, is, it is trying to understand the Word of God, but what we can do is we can really get in and we can narrow down and start to look at specific passages. Um, we start to understand individual books and we really can dive deep down into the weeds into the Bible itself. And what I mean by that is if, you're, if you are studying biblical theology, uh, my undergrad focused a lot on biblical theology and not as much on systematic theology. And that's okay, and that's a good foundation, um, but here's the point. I would spend tons and tons of time in just one book at a time. We would, Acts, Acts about killed me. Uh, and I'm not going to bore you with all the things, but we would go through these charts, and you'd have to go through the whole book of Acts, and you'd have to read it, and you'd have to stop and say, okay, here, this idea ends here. A new idea starts, and you have you graph it all out. And it's really interesting when you read the word that way, but you're down into the weeds into just one passage at a time, or just one book of the Bible at a time. Here's, here's the rub. Systematic theology has the power to interpret and correct biblical theology. What do I mean by that? Have you ever seen someone take a verse out of context? Yes. Okay, they may very well have that verse down. They may have it memorized. They may understand a lot of things that are going on within that passage. But it, their interpretation would contradict the larger picture of the Bible, the larger picture of who we know God is. So what is theology? Anybody? The study of God. 
The study of God, that's right. And so when we, when we say theology, there's lots of branches of theology. There's systematic theology, there's biblical theology, there's theology proper, which literally is studying the nature and character of God, the Trinity, and so on and so forth. There's Christology, there's soteriology, all of those things that can fall into uh, the, the bucket of theology. But what systematic theology does is it says, I want to look at the whole picture. I want to interpret interpret scripture in light of scripture in light of the overall message what is the overall message how does god work what is he like and then we can start to say well this passage is difficult what do i do with it well systematic theology helps us answer those questions and keeps us from going off into making crazy conclusions just based on one passage uh shed is 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 he wrote a, a book called Dogmatic Theology in the 1800s and it's and it's a really good really good read but one of the things that he says is he says it's really easy to just twist some things if you're only looking at one book really easy to twist some things even if you're just looking at the gospels but you're missing out on the other stuff and so early heretics like Marcion actually did that or he said you know what we don't need the old testament i'm just going to use these books but, but what do we miss if we do that? What do we miss if we just look at one book of the Bible, if we just look at one testament, the New Testament? We're missing out on the overall picture. What's the major theme? What is systematic theology? Who is God and what is he like? So I'll prime your mind with that. I want you to think through that. Now, we're, we're talking about biblical theology, but we never leave behind the idea of systematic theology and its ability to interpret and correct our biblical theology, okay? So we're going to jump in here with some quick and easy tips and tricks, all right? So everyone, you, you should have your physical copy. If you don't have your physical copy, that's okay. I have a phone, too, floating around somewhere. It's over there. Um, and I have my Bible on my phone, and that's great. But you see up there in the top left, do you see, what is, can you read that? What does it say? 1 Samuel 4, 3. What is, what is that telling you? It is the Old Testament. Now, you don't have to go to that, but you can. That's fine. But what does that actually tell you up there? Very good, very good. The first, what verse does that page of your Bible actually start with? Awesome. And so you can see it there. Uh, it's three, all right? So then over here, what does this one say? So it says 1 Samuel 5, 9. What is that literally telling you? That's, the, that's how it ends, isn't it? If I went down and looked, 5, 9. Verse 9 is the last verse on that page of the Bible. So it's a little quick, easy uh, trick to, to help you navigate your word. You're like, where does this end? Do I need to go to the next page? Easy. Look up at the top and say, this is all. This is the last verse that this page is going to give me. If I'm looking for Galatians 4, 6 in my case here, it's not going to be on this page because 4, 5 is the last one here. All right. So then there's another idea here. We look at these things right here. And I was kind of uh, small, but do you see on the top left circle, I have uh, the third verse circled. And then can you see just above the word from, there's a little Y. I know it's really small, but can you see that little Y? What are those Ys and what are those letters? Those, those are going to be referencing your footnotes uh, and your, your cross references. Can you see to the top right circle? And you see it has a three, a bold three with the Y next to it. That's going to literally take you on a rabbit trail. You say, I want to know where this cross-reference is. Where does, what is this scripture um, 
How does it relate to other places in the Word of God? And that is a great way to practice what we're calling systematic theology, where we're saying, I want to know what the overall message of the Scriptures are. Right? What is the overall message of the scripture? And so you can cross-reference and start to look at that. And this is a recent development. The old Bibles didn't come with this cool stuff. Our Bibles have these, and they're a tool for us to be able to actually engage the word of God holistically. Always try to practice studying the Bible holistically. Look at that stuff. Use those references. All right, let's get into uh, translations. I'm going to take a quick survey, and then I'm going to play a video from a professor from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a professor of New Testament interpretation. Um, but before I do that, I want to do a quick survey. So uh, all of the, we'll start with NIV. All of the NIV people, raise your hand. A large number, you know, yeah, okay, he's 50-15, he's 50, he's 50, yeah, we're, we're working on him, we're getting him there, and I'm just, 1984, yeah, I know that's 88 stuff, um, okay, so we've got a large number of NIV folks, you know, NIV is actually the most popular translation in the world, um, most people use the NIV, uh, it's interesting, there's some, there's some things to be discussed, and we'll mess with some of that tonight. Okay, uh, anybody else? Let's see. Do, any King James folks? I know Paul. Paul's got to raise his hand. King James? New King James. Make the distinction. King James or New King James. So, so this is a pretty good group. Okay, any ESVers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. The young Bloods. Uh, NASB. Anyone got an NASB? All right. Excellent, excellent. New Living Translation? One or two? Okay. What about the message? Thank you for coming. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. You know what? I really got myself in trouble one day. Uh, I was going off on this stuff. I used to be a lot worse than I am now. Um, and I was like, anyone uses the messages, blah, blah, blah. And this lady's like, I use the message? I was like, oh, man. Like, totally threw out. And, and, you know, I lost my, my credibility right there. But... We'll talk about that a little bit here, but there's nicer ways to do that than the way I used to do it. So um, let's watch this video here. Uh, professor Plummer, um, like I said, he's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's going to help us understand a little bit uh, regarding the English translations. No joke, when my wife was delivering our first baby in the hospital, she was in labor. The female doctor was talking to me, and she said, now what is the best English Bible translation? We had this discussion while my wife was in labor. But um, I like to tell people we have an embarrassing riches of translations in English. We have so many good translations, so we need to be aware that there are many languages in the world that do not even have one translation. And so the debates that we sometimes have among ourselves are kind of silly in light of that. Now, are there any bad translations? I would say yes. A translation that is that a cult group has changed the word of God, that's a bad translation. Like the New World Translation by Jehovah's Witnesses is a bad translation because it's driven by a heretical doctrinal view. But among translations completed by committees of of scholars, we really have 
many different choices. And, and the best way to explain it is there's a spectrum. And along that spectrum, you have some translations that are more word for word, and those are called formally equivalent. And then you have translations that are more meaning for meaning, and that's more functionally equivalent. So on the far end here, more formally equivalent, we would have a New American Standard Bible. A little further back this way, the ESV, maybe in the middle here, we would have the NIV, and then we go over here all the way to functionally equivalent, more meaning for meaning, the New Living Translation. Now, all those translations I mentioned, I think, are good translations, but they have a different um, translation philosophy. And so for the New American Standard, for example, if there are 10 words in the Greek, they'll try to have 10 words in the English, and they'll try to follow the same structure of the Greek sentence. Now, sometimes that, that results in the translation being a little bit harder to read, whereas the New Living Translation, you may have 10 words in Greek, may end up having 15 words in English. And what was a prepositional phrase at the end of the Greek, Greek verse may be at the beginning of the English because it sounds more natural there. So I, I encourage people to have multiple translations and sometimes to compare them. If, and if, when they differ, explore that further with a study Bible or through reading commentaries. The, the best way to, another way to understand formal and functional equivalence would be with, with modern languages. So when I, I've gone to China, I was a teacher in China, one of the greetings in China is, Ni chilema, have you eaten? Right? Now, if we translate that very literally, have you eaten? It, <laughs> the, you know, let's say I'm with a group of Americans, and, and I, I say, this, this pastor has asked, have you eaten? And I think they would think, well, does he want to invite us to dinner? There's something wrong with, uh, you know, what's going on? Whereas he's basically just saying, hey, we're glad, glad to have you here. What's up? Is everything okay? And so the I, I could do a New American, Stand trans New American Standard translation. Have you eaten? I could do a New Living translation. The pastor says, greetings. He's glad you're here. Right now, both of those are accurate in, the, in what I'm intending to do. So that's one way to think about Bible translation. Thanks for watching. All right, so he, he made a good distinction, right? So and you have it actually on your little handout. Uh, so we have functional uh, and formal. And you see to the right, farthest to the right, you have the NASB, ESV. They're very, very close. And I'll actually show you another graph uh, later tonight, kind of that um, trajectory between readability and actual word for word. Uh, so there's a lot to be said there. Um, but what, what's, what did he mention? Does anyone, did anything that he said uh, stand out to anyone that they'd like to, to throw out there that they hadn't quite thought of before? What about the issue of philosophy? translation philosophy. Have you ever thought of that? So when you hold your Bible, I don't care what version it, that, that you're holding, we have to recognize that there was a philosophy involved in producing that book. It's not that we literally have the handwritten letter from the Apostle Paul when we look at Galatians or, or any of these others. Somebody had to take it out of the original language and put it into our language. And there's lots and lots of decisions that have to be made during that process. And so if you can't read those original languages for yourself, you need someone to do that for you. And what are, what are you left with? You're left with their interpretation. They have to interpret the text for you. I'm just going to start with that. So there's always a translation philosophy. Doesn't matter what translation you have, there's a philosophy. And so when we look at the formally equivalent, 
all the way to the right on your little uh, bar there. That is where they literally went in and they said, okay, I want to uh, take a look at this word for word. So more interpreting is left to the reader. So when you read an NASB or an ESV, uh, you are getting closer to the original language, but more is left up to you to kind of figure out. All right. Does anyone see pros and cons? I want to take uh, one pro and one, one, one con. Anybody got either one of those? For a functionally, uh, or for, excuse me, formally equivalent? Why might it be a little bit scary if you hand someone something that they got to do more interpreting for themselves? Any, any, any cons to that? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. So remember what he said? He said with that, that Chinese phrase, have you eaten? So if you gave something like that to someone and they're like, uh, <laughs> what, is, what is this meaning? And then that could be problematic, okay? Now, I think his example, with all due respect, I think that's the high, uh, you know, the hyper end of the spectrum. We're not going to come across, an ESV or NASB is not going to come up with something quite that far off where we're like, man, that doesn't make any sense in English. Whereas when, if, if someone says to you, have you eaten, you're going to think, he wants to go eat or he's going to feed me. <laughs> And so there is some interpretation that does happen, but the philosophy is, and he, I absolutely agree, and he's way more qualified than I am, but I think he's using that hyper example there. The philosophy is that they're literally trying to say, word for word, here's what the original language said. But what we have to look at when we're interpreting from the original language, so I'll write an O and an L, into what we call the receptor language. Sometimes this is called the transmission language or transmitter language. So let's say that this is Greek, and let's say that this is English. What you have is you have all sorts of issues uh, with getting from here to here because words in the original language may not have an equivalent in the receptor language. Or the words over here have such a wide range of meaning that when we get it over here, it's kind of like, what do we do with it? Has anyone ever heard that context determines meaning? I hope everyone's heard that. Well, even in the translation process in the very first step, getting it from the original language to the uh, receptor language, we have to do that because there's something called semantic range. So I'll just put an S and an R here. Semantic range. And that basically says if I have one word, how wide is its range? How many different things might that one word mean? So in English, when I say cool, what am I meaning? There's a semantic range, isn't there? So if I said cool, you, you could be like, I need more. But if I said, that's cool, man, that means something different than the opposite of hot, right? It's not physically hot. It's cool on a whole nother level, right? So there's a semantic range for the word cool. So if someone was going and saying, hey, I'm going to translate this word, and I'm going to put it over here, well, that word may mean many different things. And what the problem is, is in Greek, they are really efficient. They can, they can use one word to tell a whole story. And so when it comes and pops over here, then we're like, uh, uh, what do we do with it, right? There's one word, uh, for example, 
that in the Greek can mean heart or bow or emotion. And then you put that in English, and it's like, well, those are different things, aren't they? Um, if, I, if, I said, if I said that I hold you dear in my bowels, <laughs> you, 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 that would, would not translate. It wouldn't make sense, would it? But all of those are, those are equivalent. Those, those would fall within what we call a semantic range. So when I'm taking that word for heart out of the Greek and putting it into English, I could choose technically to translate it into English, heart, emotion, or bow, and have no problem and be perfectly accurate in doing so. But context determines which one I actually end up choosing, right? And so there's a philosophy driving that. Now, thought for thought, that is where the interpreters who are taking it from the original language to the receptor language, they're saying, you know what? Let's make this easier for our readers. We want, we want to capture the idea. What are they trying to communicate? And let me distill that down and hand that to the reader. Any pros and cons, any pros or cons that anyone can think of with the functional equivalency or the functionally equivalent meaning for meaning translations? Anybody? Any any pros? Any pros? Any, any pros right off? Or a lot easier to read. Excellent. Okay. So it's kind of like saying, "Hey, man, here's the gist. Here's here. This this is this is really what it's trying to say." Um, let me do. Excuse me, some of the work for you. Uh, let's clear up some confusion that may result. So yeah, easier to read is one of them. Any any cons that may exist with just a functional? Yes. Mm, okay. For, he said words change meanings. Excellent. Yes. Perfect. Words do change meanings. And uh, we have what we call equivocation. I can equivocate. I can say something to somebody, and then they say, I think you mean this. And you're like, no, that isn't at all what, I, what I'm trying to communicate to you. Because they're equivocating, and words change over time. Let's, you know, I am not being vulgar at all, but the word queer. Have we seen any changes in that word? And, 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 and there's so many different words we see throughout time uh, that, that just get changed and we have to kind of progressively respond to that okay so there's a lot of examples that we could use there but here's here's what I would say before we dig a little bit deeper I recommend um, I recommend early on there's nothing wrong with a thought for thought uh, meaning for meaning functional equivalent translation but I would I would encourage to supplement with a closer to a formally equivalent and here's the reason when you're actually looking at this stuff and you start to mature and you start to get better at doing this, okay, you want to have a little bit deeper look into what the actual original text said. Because little things start to matter, all right? And, and, and you don't want to build your theology on kind of a, uh, a kind of a paraphrase, so to speak, uh, foundation. And I'm not saying that, even, on, even though the NLT is all the way to the, the far end here, I'm not saying that if that's all you ever have, that now you're an immature theologian. That's not true. But it does restrict your ability to wrestle with the deeper meanings that are in there. Not going to say that now the whole gospel changes and who is Jesus. Well, we don't know because we're using <laughs> this one. Now, I would argue, stay with me here. 
I would argue there are some translations that will mess you up, and I do believe that the message is one of them. That's my opinion. You can take it with, you can throw it away when you leave, whatever. My personal opinion is that is not a translation, that is a paraphrase, and we're getting into some other weird stuff there. My Rob Lewis opinion, do with it, you will. Paraphrase, yeah, paraphrase. Uh, so paraphrase is almost that next level of meaning for meaning. And so instead of saying, here's the idea, it's saying, let me say something that's not this, but close to give you that idea, okay? So meaning for meaning is, is gonna say, I'm gonna stay with the idea, really close with it. But to paraphrase is to say something close, but completely different. Does that make sense? Um, I can paraphrase somebody, uh, and wh whenever they say, well, I didn't say that. I say, well, I'm paraphrasing you, right? Do we, I, I don't want to do that with God. <laughs> if God says, I never said that, I, I, I am not at the liberty to say, well, I'm paraphrasing you. That's not a good thing in my mind. I want to look at what did the Lord say through his scriptures, and I want to be able to get as close to that original message as possible. There are barriers. Do we have to wrestle with them? Absolutely. So let's keep going here. Okay, so there's this little graph here. Uh, so this is produced by uh, the folks who produced the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And you see that this uh, they got this optimal path, so to speak. The bottom uh, axis is actually uh, how, how, how literal is it? Is it a literal translation? So you can go farther to the right. The, the y-axis or the up and down axis is readability. How easy is it to understand, okay? And so they have the ESV actually on this chart a little further to the literal side than the NASB. And you see the King James Version and the New King James are right there in line. They're very close. They're very far to the right for a literal interpretation. But then further up in Y-positive on that left axis, uh, we have readability. And so their argument here is that the Christian standard uh, version is the best compromise between readability and uh, being a literal interpretation. Okay, uh, this is based on one person's uh, statistical analysis. No statistical model is perfect, but that's theirs, and it's not far off from everything that you'll ever see. And I thought this was a good representation of kind of how they kind of a scatter plot, how they kind of fall uh, on those two axes. Literal translation versus readability, all right? Uh, and so you see, to very far to the left, I'm not beating up on the NLT, but do you see the, the outlier, statistically speaking, the green dot? Very, very far. It's less than 40, or at best, 40% literal translation. But it is very high on readability. And then you see the NIV? Is, is a bit further to the right for a literal translation compared to the NLT, and it's, it's really close as well uh, on the par with readability as the NLT. So, uh, I, th I, think, I think it's probably close to the CSB. So I don't know what the difference between the Holman is and, and this one. So I think that they are pretty close, but I could not say what the distinction is in the Holman in that HCSB. Uh, but I believe that they're, they're based. I believe that's on based on the CSB. Someone knows differently. They're welcome to correct me <laughs> and take a picture of that. Then I won't change it. Any questions? Any questions on that before we move on? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so the Chicago statement really had nothing to do with which translation. That, that was a totally different uh, discussion. They were there to defend the topic of inerrancy and infallibility. Okay, so the Chicago uh, confession the statements, uh, the 19 articles they produced, said little. I, I don't think any of them actually said anything about the uh, which English translation you would roll with. So they were saying, is it accurate? Is it reliable? Translations would be kind of a little bit of a different conversation, but that's a good that's a good question. All right, so let's keep moving on here. So I said philosophy. So I'm an ESV guy primarily. I have tons of Bibles. I have a whole bookshelf devoted to different translations, and I enjoy hanging out with them. But this actually came from uh, Crossway, their website for the ESV, and they literally will say, "Here is our translation philosophy." So if you're looking to get a new Bible. I recommend trying to find out what their translation philosophy is because it matters. All right, so this, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I highlight or I, I made in bold word for word you see there, and it says, in contrast to the ESV, some Bible versions have followed a thought for thought rather than a word for word translation. Uh, philosophy emphasizing dynamic equivalence rather than essentially literal. So there's a lot that goes on there, and they don't beat up any other translation. They're just telling you this is our philosophy. Take it or leave it. So I just leave that with you. When you go buy a new Bible, look at the translation of philosophy. What was the philosophy of those who produced that? Because not all Bibles have the same philosophy. There's a different philosophy. Okay. So let's take a look. What about the King James Version? All right. Woo! You guys got your fighting gloves on? Just kidding. It may get a little bit bloody. Okay. So has anyone ever heard of King James only advocates? Yeah. I am here to speak out against that, but I'm not here to speak out against the King James Version. King James Version is a good version, nothing wrong with it. I think there's a discussion that could be had on that, but what I want to show you a little bit, just so that you're informed, is the King James only philosophy that I think is absolutely incorrect. Okay, so here's, here's a little a diagram, and I know it's kind of small, uh, and I'm going to produce, produce all these presentations. You guys can check them out later. But can you see um, on the left there, it says Greek, and then if you follow that line all the way down, you end up with this circle around the King James Authorized Bible of 1611. Okay, so their argument in this is that the original New Testament, the authentic line, it literally says authentic line. If you follow the authentic line, it terminates in the King James Version. It does not go any further than 1611. Problem number one. <laughs> when, uh, when anyone has a King James, does anyone have a King James in here? Uh, not a new King James, just a King James. Okay. I'm not, I'm not totally familiar with that one, so I don't, I don't know uh, what the distinctions are with that one. But a King James, not just a new King James, a King James, okay, today that you would buy is the 1769 version of King James. There were tons of edits that happened between 1611 and 1769. So when people say, I have the King James version, this diagram already is in trouble because they're saying 1611 or nothing. And actually, the 1611 had all sorts of issues that they had to go back through. And we'll talk a little bit through some of that. The six, my point is, the King James Version that we buy and can hold in our hands today is not the 1611. They're different beasts. 
Not to get into all those details, but first off, that's, that's, that's something wrong. But more important, if you follow to the right, it starts with the corrupted line. <laughs> all right, well, how does the corrupted line end? And I know this is a little small, but it ends with the NIV and the RSV and the any, anything that's not a KJV. Okay, and they say it's the Gnostics. The Gnostics gave us this, all right? So what really happened, though, is more in line right here. So you have AV, which stands for the Authorized Version of 1611, but then there was lots of revisions between 1611 and uh, the Authorized Version of 1769, okay? And then way later, we then have the New King James Version uh, that, that it just, it's, it's good. It's, it shows that there's, there's a willingness to look at new evidence. So I love that the New King James came out because they're saying, hey, there's room for improvement, all right? But some people would say, no, the 1611 KJV or nothing. And I would have to push back on those and say, if you've got a 1611, that thing needs to be in a museum. Because most of us are going to be rolling with the 1769 or the newer version. All right. Okay. So, but you see the, the right side breaks off over here. Then you have ASV, the American Standard Version, RSV, the Revised, uh, and then the NASB, the New American. All right. And then the NRSV, which is the New Revised Standard Version. Okay. So, do you see at the bottom left, it says Textus Receptus? Can everybody at least see that? I know my diagrams are a little bit small tonight, but can you at least see Texas Receptus there? Anybody know what the Texas Receptus is? Oh, I like the way you think. I am from Texas, and I'll roll with that. <laughs> okay, so actually that is... Uh, well, it's a transliteration now because it's in English, but Latin, it means the received texts, okay? All I really want you to, to know is that the King James Version is built on this Texas, Texas, <laughs> now I can't say, now I want to say Texas, the Textus Receptus, all right? So the TR is how it sometimes is abbreviated, all right, leads down this path to what we would call the King James Version, okay? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with this, but there's some interesting things if you follow that path up, okay? I'm going to erase my systematic theology stuff here for a little bit to make some room. Okay, so if we went up from here, where did we get the, the received text, so to speak? Well, some people argue, and I think it's kind of funny but kind of true as well, that um, both Erasmus's Greek New Testament and coffee started the Reformation. Has anyone ever heard that claim before? I'm inclined to believe it because I love coffee and I love the Reformation, so there's got to be some correlation there. All right, so basically what happened is in 1516, Erasmus, who was a, a brilliant scholar in the Catholic Church, produced his Greek New Testament. And what Erasmus did was he said, we need a good new Greek New Testament. Okay, so for a long time, before 1516, uh, any ideas as to what was the popular language that the Bible was stuck in? Latin. Jerome, St. Jerome, uh, in the 4th, 5th century, uh, translated the word into Latin, and it got stuck there <laughs> for a very long time. 
You could not get a Bible in any other language than Latin. Who was speaking Latin anymore? The priests. <laughs> That's it. Your your common person. You know what? So I'm gonna write this down because it's worth it's worth actually. I need a Vanna White or someone up here to hold my thing so it doesn't move. Here we go. Multitasking. It's spinning. <laughs> okay. So uh, where was I? Oh yeah, the Vulgate. So this actually is Latin for common. What's interesting is that there was a time when Latin was no longer the common language. So when Jerome gave us the Latin Vulgate, he, he, he was actually trying to give us a word in the everyday man's language. Because you know what? When everyone was speaking Latin, they weren't speaking Greek and Hebrew. And so he said, let me give them a version, and he was commissioned by the church, and there's all sorts of history that goes into that, but he gave us a version that was in Latin, and people could read Latin at that point in time. But then it got stuck in Latin, and if you translated it, the Bible into any other language besides Latin, you could die for it. And we see persecution with people like uh, uh, William Tyndale and the, all these different folks who, that, that's exactly what happened. They started putting it in English, and they got in trouble. There was all sorts of, 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 of problems. So what happened, though, was in 1516, we have Erasmus gives us the Greek New Testament, okay, and he's working back. He's doing some stuff pointing back to the Vulgate, and so he had very few texts to work with, actual texts that he could look at. So if you imagine he had a desk and he had some Greek manuscripts and some Latin manuscripts, he had less than a dozen, basically, to work with. That's all he had available to him. So he's trying to, trying to get this stuff back into the original Greek, all right? And so he gives us this Greek New Testament in 1516. Around the same time, coffee from Arabia starts showing up. And people started drinking coffee and hanging out and talking about the Bible, talking about Erasmus's new uh, Greek New Testament. So that is um, my justification for being a theologian who loves coffee. There's, there's, there's history behind it, all right? So that's what the good old guys used to do, all right? So anyone who says that it's a sin, you need to go back to the 1500s and deal with it. Okay, so we have here all this good stuff. Well, then later, uh, there was in about 1550, and I say about because I'm not a scholar on this, but I am really close, and I'm actually maybe 1550, but I'm leaving some room. You can correct me. <laughs> There, there was basically a few guys who got together. Uh, I think his name, one of them was uh, Stephanus, uh, who said, hey, I want to understand what Erasmus did. Because there was no thing called the Texas Receptus at that point. Well, they said, let's go back and kind of look at what he was looking at. And let's say, let's get an idea uh, concerning all of these elements that went into this and unify and give ourselves a Greek New Testament that is, is, is accurate and as robust as we can come up with. And they did that. And that became the foundation for the King James Version. So when the King James was trans, when, when those guys got together and translated it, uh, the King James Version, they were looking back to the Texas Receptus as their foundation for the Greek New Testament, okay? Because it's not like there's just one, you know, uh, volume of New Testament, you got the Gospels, and you got all these things, and they say, oh, it's easy, all I got to do is translate that into English. No, you've got lots of manuscripts, and they don't all perfectly agree with one another. There's little different things. None of it's doctrinal. Don't get, don't get messed up on any of that. But there's, there's consistency to be sought. And so early textual criticism developed right here, because they're saying, let's look at all the manuscripts we've got, 
and let's find the, the most consistency here, and that's going to become our standard, all right? So today, if you're not a Texas Receptus person, you would go with the Nestle and Allen. Uh, this is what everyone else is, is driving off of, and we'll talk a little bit about that here in just a second. But you see the NASB and all of that, RSV, those, those folks are, are, are pulling off of this. So the Texas Receptus is the um, other one of these. If you read this right here, it's only in Greek. You, there's no, there's no English at all. Like even the for the you know the forwards like in Greek and there's a portion in German which I can't read German, so I'm better off just muscling through the Greek. But it's really interesting when you look at this. It, it helps you understand. We need some help. If you can, afterwards come up and look at this, and you'll get very quickly that we need someone to come help us even read our own Bibles, if we're going to look back at the original stuff. All right, so the, this is what most modern scholars are going to as the standard. Well, back then, this was it. This one didn't exist. Okay, and not to get too deep into the weeds right here, but these guys had no documents. If I went and did a timeline, here's my threshold of uh, 1,000 A.D., they had no documents older than 1000 AD. Why is that a significant thing to consider? Very far removed. Uh, in textual criticism, older is what? Better. We want to get as close to the eyewitnesses as we can. So what happened, and I, I, I'm going to eat up all my time here if I don't move on. What actually happened is, so there's the Byzantine and then there's the Alexandrian. The Byzantine is actually related to the Texas Receptus. They're not the same thing. But this is also sometimes called the majority uh, text. And that's because we've got more of them. And then there's the Alexandrian, but the Alexandrian texts go further back in time than the Byzantine texts, but we have more of the Byzantine texts. So what textual critics will do in a good way is they'll go back and say, let's look at the oldest stuff we've got and start to build a case for that. And that then informs our any needs for corrections and all of that. Any questions? I could we could talk all night on this. I got to move on, but any quick questions on this right here? Yes, yes. Now, to be fair, there's some folks who are going to argue well, older isn't always better. Well, okay, but generally speaking, that's what we're going to want to do. Um, so. All I want to say is that both of them are good, but there's limitations to this right here. And we've got to have some humility to say, hey, what's gotten better? Premise one, do you see the gap between 1611 and 1769? And it says revisions. Why do you think there were revisions? Stuff needed to change, right? And if you read 1611 versus the 1769, they're different animals. I mean, literally different animals. And so they said, okay, we need to change some things uh, for readability, if nothing else, all right? And so we just have to keep that in our minds. Okay, so let's, let's do a quick little look up. Someone with a King James, I think the new King James will work too, help us. And someone else with uh, Rickster, you're quick. Look up John 5, 4. So this is, you know, Chris was warming us up for Bible drill, but everyone, everyone look up John 5, 4. I want to see the best interpretation of that. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> Does anybody have it? The King James folks will have it. What do you have? Yep. King J anyone who's, who's floating in the King James world, New King James, is going to have it. Uh, anyone care to read that for us real quick? For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Interesting. Uh, what does it say in the other translations? <laughs> Nothing. It skips from three to five. <laughs> uh, it's, what, what version do you have? In ASP, what does it say? It probably has a footnote off to the side that says most, most early, most early text. Yeah, it'll have a bracket or parentheses telling you most early texts don't don't have it. So the Texas Receptus had it, but then when they went and found the older manuscripts, it didn't have it. And so they're like, uh, <laughs> how'd this get in here? Get rid of it. Okay. There's a lot of other verses that we can look at. There's some differences between these two, okay? So let's take a look. I'm not going to take all the time tonight, but let's quickly look at this. Uh, so the Texas Receptus on the left, the Nestle Allen, which is what I was just holding up. So comparisons. So there's textual criticism and theology. So uh, look at Luke 9.35. It says, this is my beloved son. That's what the Texas Receptus says. The Nestle Allen said, this is my son, comma, the chosen one. John 1.18 says, the only begotten son in the Texas Receptus, but then on the Nestle Allen side, it says, the only begotten, comma, God. And so there's not just an, it's not just an issue of things missing or being added, because there's some stuff that we have to deal with there, but some people would claim, you know what, we need to look at these others because they actually give us better support for Christology, looking at who Jesus is. Um, and I'm not, I'm not beating up on the TR, but that, that is just part of what we kind of need to recognize. If we're going to read the King James and the New King James, it is helpful to have something else to kind of supplement and look at some of these things because there are some theological differences. Not going to end Christianity on them. But there are some important things to kind of glean and look at. All right. So some other ones uh, we can look at. I don't have time. We're going to move on. But there's lots of different things that we can look at with the differences there. But the summary is there's nothing wrong with the KJV, NK, the New King James, ESV, NASB. Several good translations benefit the English-speaking theologian. Maybe even the NIV. <laughs> Chris softened that whenever he my, – my translator softened that. And he put it in here <laughs> on the bottom here. <laughs> I did. So his translation philosophy went a little bit more meaning for meaning. <laughs> and I love it. I am joking. I have an NIV. Uh, I bought my wife an NIV. My kids have ESV, but that's a different story. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a good translation. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, John MacArthur would tell you there is, and so you have to talk to him about that. But uh, that's a whole other conversation we don't have time to get into. Uh, but I would say a plurality of translations is a good thing. If you have it on your phone, awesome. Uh, I, I actually like having the physical text and, and just looking at them, and it's really interesting to see some of the differences. All right, so interpretation. Let's, t let's get into this. Uh, 
You don't have to take it literally, do you? Has, it, has anyone ever said that to you? You don't take the, the Bible literally, do you? You don't take that literally. It's something that, that comes up all the time. So interpretation. Biblical authority is an empty notion unless we know how to determine what the Bible means. So J.I. Packer says that. I can talk about authority all I want to, but if I'm messing up the interpretation, what, what's my authority <laughs> foundation there, right? So proper interpretation is essential to talking about biblical authority, as, as Packer says, all right? So there's two types of responses we could have to the word. The first is called reader response, and that's like I say, you can say true for you, but not for me. That, that, trend, that reading, that interpretation, maybe that's true for you, but that isn't, that isn't what it means to me. All right, so that, you know, we talked about that. Have you ever been in a Bible study where they say you read a passage and everyone looks up and says, I don't know what this means. What do you think it means? And everyone says, I don't know. We, we all didn't know anything, but we learned so much. <laughs> so that's the first way to approach the scripture, which I think is crazy, but, but we have it going on all the time. All right. The second one is what we call authorial intent. What was the author actually trying to communicate? So quick. Quick quiz, who's the author of scripture? God. Does he have a message for us? Yes. Can we understand that message? Yes. So is it up to us to invent the message? No. Okay, we've got to look at it. What does God want us to understand and apply? So context, never just read a Bible verse. If nothing else you remember tonight, remember this, never just read a Bible verse. Because if you just read a Bible verse only, you are not paying attention to context. And context is critical. Look at what's around that verse. Now, memorizing verses, I'm, that's cool. You know, it's not like, you know, I, I can't memorize one verse. I got to memorize the whole book or nothing. That's not what I'm saying. If you go to a verse, someone throws a verse in your face. Someone, I've had people say, well, what about this? And it teaches explicitly this, this, and this. And it's like, Okay, let's go and check it out. And then bam, 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 you start to see that is not at all what it means. And it's really easy to rip one verse out of context and make it serve you rather than have it in its place and it actually searches you. And that's the difference. We come to Scripture not to search Scripture, but to have Scripture search us. The God of the universe communicating to us has a message that we need to hear and that means we'd never just read a Bible verse out of context, all right? So context, there's the passage, there's the immediate context, then there's the larger section, which may be the chapter, okay, and the rest of the book, or the testament, or the rest of the Bible, all right? So we've got to think about this, and when we come to reading the Word of God, we've got to understand these things. So here's a little quote, it says, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. All right, someone apply that today. What? <laughs> Do some neck exercises. I don't know. All right, so the actual passage is back there in 1 Samuel, and it actually has a context, doesn't it? So we would need to kind of understand what was going on there, all right? So there's four steps of interpretation. This is really important, all right? So there's, we got to first off understand what did it mean to them then? This was not written to you and me in a way. There's a first order audience, and we need to understand what did this mean to the first order audience because we are the second order audience. 
when God wrote the scriptures to particular people, it had a message for them. What did it mean in their town? What are the differences between us and them? And what are some theological principles that can help us bridge that gap to then start to talk about application for us now in our time, all right? So the four steps, their town, the river, theological principles, and your town. And so what we've got to do is we've got to resist the urge to immediately read a scripture, read a text, and then go to application. If you go straight to application, you're going straight to four. You're going to your town. You've got to stop and ask, what did it mean to them in their town? What are the differences between me and them? Language, culture, covenants, lots of things that can separate us that we've got to stop and think about before we start to talk about what it means in our town. But an example of a theological principle that helps us build that principalizing bridge is things that transcend those things in the river, culture, time, testament. Can you think of anything? The nature of God doesn't change, does it? In one of my classes, I had to uh, come up with some application to an old passage in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy. And it said that you should build a parapet around your house, lest a man fall off and his blood be on your hands. That's it. That was all we had. And they're like, interpret this. Give us the application. I don't know what a parapet is, right? So <laughs> I had to back up and look into that, right? But basically, they, they build these little fences around the tops of their house because in that, in that day, people slept on their roofs. And that was a common practice. And we're like, what are you doing up there? If you fall off my roof, that's your fault. But they lived in that culture. We need to understand what that meant to them. And also, what's the principalizing bridge? Well, God wants us to care for our neighbor. He wants us to do good to others, and it is our responsibility to look out for the, the interest of other people. So that's a, that, in that, I start, oh, I, okay, I see it, that God would have me to look out for my brothers and sisters. And then if someone is injured on my time because of my carelessness, in a way, I'm responsible. Now, Old Testament, we've got some different things to work through, but if I'm just careless with things, I think God will hold me responsible because that's a theological principle that God didn't change. He didn't say, you know what, I don't care, do whatever you want, be as careless as you want, speed down the highway, drunk drive, and do all those great things. To me, not driving drunk is building the parapet around your roof today. Because I think if you, here we're on the soapbox, if you're a drunk driver and you hit someone and kill someone, do you think God's going to hold you responsible for that? I think so. So there's a lot that can be said on that topic, but keep these points in your mind. First, what is it? What is the context? What does it mean to them? Okay? So there's four other elements to consider. Terms, you know, the things that repeat. Uh, key words, nouns, verbs, right? Grammatical structure. They help us understand the meaning of a text through the use of verbs, nouns, prepositional phrases, and so on. Literary form. Is this a historical outline like Joshua? Or is it a theological outline like the book of Romans? And what's the atmosphere, the underlying tone, okay? So let's take a look at this. Does everyone know what a prepositional phrase is? So the cupcake with sprinkles is yours. The cupcake with colorful sprinkles, those are, those are all, uh, you know, prepositional phrases. We climbed up the very steep hill. So let's do a quick little quiz. Question one, there are lots of birds nesting. Which one of those three is, is, is a prepositional phrase? One, that's right, under the eaves. After school, the children played tag at the park. 
All right, so that, that helps us put things in context because if we throw up Galatians chapter 3 here and we read this, we can see different things, okay? Prepositional phrases. But first off, what do we want to do? We want to look at any words that are repeated. See any, see any repeats showing up? What would you say a theme of that passage is? Faith and spirit. Do you see spirit popping up all over the place? He is, he is saying, here's the theme, guys. Here's what I want you to get. But the prepositional phrases, like, it says, having begun by the Spirit, right, perfected by flesh, through faith. you got all these interesting things uh, that, that you have uh, where, where, where we can see clearly that God wants to communicate something to us. And when we come to this passage, we would do well to stop and take our time and look for that theme. One, we ask the question, what does it mean for this to be in context? So we did some stuff, but what do we need to do next to put this in context? Anybody? What's the, <laughs> that's right. I need to zoom out, right? I need to look at Galatians 2 and Galatians 1 and Galatians 4 and, and 5. We need to look around. Who's Paul? How does, how does he, what's his style? Okay, great. So I understand that I am saved by faith, not by works of the law. Is, the, is this a biblical theme? Is, 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 can I build some systematic theology into this? Yes. Right? Because this one passage on its own is good, but that's not the end of the story, is it? Yes, that is theology right there. Absolutely. But what does the rest of the Bible say on that topic? Because that's going to give us that holistic view of what it means to truly be saved by faith and not by works of the law. All right? So we're, uh, we're clipping here, and i got to end. So uh, I want to quickly go into interpretation. Does the Bible have authority today? I want to show you just a couple-minute clip here, and we have time for it, and then we're going to end after that. But this clip is a panel of some individuals, uh, Tim Keller, uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, I forgot the Catholic gentleman's name, um, all, all good guys. And then there's a guy named, here, here I just set this up badly, so Brian McLaren, anyone knows who he is? He's different. So this is going on the internet, <laughs> whatever. But you'll see some stuff. Uh, so here I am messing with stuff because I'm not going to play the Brian stuff. <laughs> but I want you to hear from uh, Alistair McGrath and Tim Keller and this other Catholic fellow. Yes, I'm going to make you listen to a Catholic, and you'll be okay. Their question is, biblical authority and culture, what do we do with it? And I think it's really interesting.
Now, one of the things I want to try and emphasize is that we need to be able to read Scripture in a way that it demonstrably affects the way in which we think and the way in which we act. And I think that one of the difficulties we're encountering is that people are seeing a mismatch between what they think this text says and what we actually do. And I think it's unhelpful apologetically. I think in many ways we do need to rediscover what some are calling virtue ethics, which is where we are shaped and molded as people. Not simply people who say legalistically we do this, this, and this, but rather by God's grace under the direction of Scripture we're being molded into this kind of person who intuitively acts and thinks in these ways. So I think there's a real need to make sure that Scripture is not just a text at a distance, but rather as a resource that transforms us and energizes us internally. Tim, do you find, um, just based in New York, do you find that it's harder for the average Christian that's living in kind of a Western consumer-oriented culture that's not necessarily suffering too much in terms of physical needs and just some of those basic things that as we look at the church throughout history, has been a huge motivator for people staying close to Christ, running towards Scripture and that becoming... Uh, a source of hope for them in the midst of that kind of a world. Are there some unique challenges that you're finding, and Alistair, feel, feel free to jump into from your context that this kind of post-Christian Western world um, is presenting to us that we haven't encountered much in the past? Or is it similar to some time in the past? I follow you. I, I would say, interesting, um, you mean in, in areas of, I know, I, I think,
All right, so I'm going to stop it there before we get to the, the, the Catholic gentleman. He's got some great things to say, but we're, we're running close on time. Really good stuff. Here's the week summary, uh, going through it quickly. Genre and, genre and context are critical. Good exegesis or interpretation takes practice. Okay, get that in your hearts and minds. It takes practice. And here's some uh, key words. We'll go back to this. I'll put this up uh, at the end. But here's the book recommendations uh, for this week, and I have them actually up here. Uh, highly recommend all three of these books. Grasping God's Word uh, is, is excellent. Uh, and then Understanding Scripture is, is a great overview of the Bible's authority, origins, and reliability. And then Evangelical Dictionary of Theology is this big one right here. Oh my gosh, what a resource uh, that is. And I'm going to throw up my uh, little website I have called Case Evangelism. It's a website I built to, to start putting together evangelism tools, and I'll be putting these videos up there and all sorts of other resources, so feel free to check them out um, as well, uh, because I think we should use what we learn to share the gospel with other folks. So thank you for surviving five weeks, and God bless. Okay. Okay, so basically, this is like a, a sem seminary semester in five weeks, uh, which is an impossible task. Uh, but man, this target that is on your sheet, let this shape the way you study the Bible. Um, and this is so important. Like I, I, this weekend I went to a wedding, um, and one of my former students was there and, uh, and I had, I've apologized for this so often, uh, because, um, younger in ministry, uh, I I completely took a, a verse out of context because it was great on a T-shirt, um, and uh, Habakkuk one five says, uh, uh, "Look at the nations and watch and be amazed because I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told." And we had this weekend where we're like, "Man, God's going to do something big in your days." Actually, what that verse means is God's going to kill them all. Um, and uh, which would have been a better sermon if we would have got it in context. Um, but um, it is so important to know how to study the Bible because if we utilize these tools and study it correctly, it comes alive and it works. And just like Tim Keller just said, uh, it connects. And, and what I loved about how we ended there with Tim Keller is those lost people that he was meeting with said, man, I, that'd be the father I never had. Our world is desperately in need of seeing the community of faith take God's word seriously and apply it. And when we do, we don't have to even, we don't really have to be that creative. God's story just speaks and God's word is alive and, and so I know this is mental sweat, and this is not something that we're getting up going, ooh, entertaining you. Uh, this is like, okay, let's roll up our sleeves, and let's think about this, and let's learn to study this. Because as we do, um, it works. It works in our families. It works in our, I'm a better husband when I do this. I'm, I'm a better father. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a more faithful citizen. Um, it works. And uh, so let's, let's allow God to use his word and let's trust it and live it. Lord Jesus, we need you and we love you. And we want to love you with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength.
I know that, that in this class, that there are times that we just gotta go, I, I gotta think about this. And I'm thankful that we can leave going, I gotta think about it. Because Lord, we're supposed to think. We're supposed to wrestle. Father, um, thank you that you are our teacher and our guide and our savior and our Lord. And I, I can't wait till we get to heaven when everything is clear. But right now, Father, we're, we're living by faith and we're going to use every gift you've given us to, to seek you. And I thank you for your, the gift of your word. We love you and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, love you guys. Thanks for being here tonight.